Welcome to the Global Council podcast, where you can hear the GC team discuss and debate topical developments in public policy and regulation from around the world. I am delighted to be joined on this podcast today by two of my colleagues, Alex Dawson, who heads up our UK politics and policy offer, and Denzel Davidson, who is an advisor here at GC. And the three of us are going to have a chat about the UK cabinet reshuffle this week, um, which brought slightly more change than many people anticipated. Alex and Denzel are both former advisors to a number of senior conservative politicians, including a man who has been in the news this week, David Cameron, now Lord Cameron. I thought we would start by maybe thinking a little bit about what this tells us about Rishi Sunak's strategy for the Conservative Party as we head into what is likely to be an election year. So, Alex, maybe to start with you, why has Rishi Sunak brought in David Cameron now? Well, I think part of the reason why he brought in David Cameron now was to change the conversation and get people talking about the fact that Rishi Sunak's government can still surprise. If Rishi Sunak was in a position of strength, he wouldn't bring back his old boss effectively into work as one of the great officers of state in government. But I think the fact is, you know, the polling puts them somewhere between 15 and 20 points behind the Labour Party. The conference sort of rebrand and rejig and reset, whatever you want to call it, that Sunak tried to conduct hadn't really worked. There was no discernible bounce after that. If anything, the polls got worse. And therefore, you try and change the conversation. Now, bringing in someone like David Cameron is a very useful thing for Rishi Sunak in that it brings in someone who's got genuine heft within the Conservative Party, someone who's got a great deal of experience working on foreign affairs, and it allows Sunak to also focus a little bit in terms of kind of his domestic priorities, if you think whether that's his kind of five-point plan, that there was much ballyhooed meeting of one of his own internal set targets around inflation earlier this week, uh, while also thinking about the politics that kind of gets you through to the general election. So there is a re- kind of a myriad of reasons why he's done it. Whether it is successful or not, I mean, it depends on two characterizations. Is he going to be a good foreign secretary? Is it going to help the UK project kind of global Britain and sort of project the government's kind of chosen foreign policy and sort of provide a series of strength when it comes to kind of the issues that are facing the world at the moment and the UK's role in the world. Um, And then there is also a secretary question. Does it make it easier for Rishi Sunak to win the next election ultimately? And that's about whether he is able to use this to either unite his party or to at least provide definition about what he wants to do and whether it kind of frees up a bit of space in voters' hearts to think better of the Conservative government. You've talked a little bit about uniting his party. Maybe it'd be useful to just touch on briefly how it's actually being received within the Conservative Party. It's obviously odd for a number of his kind of former colleagues to see him back. It's not something they expected. He wasn't universally popular, even when Prime Minister. So how is he kind of generally being received? I think even if some of the scarring from the sort of the huge fight over Brexit that the Conservatives had has diminished somewhat, it is still present. And I think there's a certain element of David Cameron's reception that is determined as to by where those participants were in that big fight over leave or remaining in the European Union. There are plenty of people who think that Cameron coming back in is a good thing. I mean, there are some unbelievable 
source quotes to journalists about, you know, daddy's home, uh, you know, when it, when, when he was spotted walking up Downing Street, which I mean, I'll I, I leave the listener to, to sort of dwell on that. But, but then obviously you have some members of the party raising questions around um, Cameron's foreign policy, both as related to the question of Brexit, where Cameron was very much on the Remain side of the debate, on the question of China, where the Cameron kind of Osborne era of, you know, a golden decade or a golden era of UK-Chinese relationships is now very unpopular in the Conservative Party. And, and you know, and you then kind of combine that with the traditional animus that backbenchers sometimes have for party leaders and former party leaders, where it's sometimes rather difficult for them to bury the hatchet. And so I think that's just kind of a, a, something that you'd have to bear in mind. I mean, that being said, I would say that there is kind of a certain amount of kind of goodwill for the player who chooses to return to the field. Uh, and, and people rather do think that it is kind of an honourable thing for someone to do, but it's not uncomplicated. No, definitely not, especially after kind of seven years out of, out of the field, as you say. I think it'd be interesting just to turn to your point about how he will be measured as a foreign secretary. I mean, a lot of this will be determined by his kind of reception internationally. So Denzel, maybe to turn to you, you were in Brussels this week, I think when this was actually uh, announced or confirmed that, uh, that David Cameron was indeed walking up to number 10. How can we expect him to be received both in Brussels itself, but also in European capitals? Yes, well, uh, the first thing is that Britain is somewhat recursed by having English as our native language which means that everyone can follow our politics in great detail and be entertained by it. That uh, it doesn't hold true of even French and German politics, so people are much more invested in our politics than perhaps we might think. I think there are, there are four main points about the reaction. Um, the first is, and we must remember that uh, in politics and international relations, to a degree, belief and perception are reality, is that people think that this is a government with a limited shelf. They think Labour are going to win. And that means that they're not going to invest so much in a relationship with the new foreign secretary as they might if they thought that he's going to be there for some years to come. The second is that there is a degree of baggage with him, particularly in Europe. I think this is really only relevant to Europe, but the degree in some circles in the US. And quite a lot of people in Europe, rightly or wrongly, but they do think that he gambled with Britain's future in the EU and lost and that this was a tragedy. On the more positive side, he is well and fondly remembered in countries neighbouring Russia as someone who was a staunch uh, champion of Ukraine back in 2014, who uh, drove for hardest time possible from the EU sanctions, tying to work closely with Donald Tusk, who's now coming back almost certainly as Prime Minister of Poland. And given that one of the big crises uh, Europe continues to face is, the, is Russia's invasion of Ukraine, that will stand him in, in good stead and he'll have a lot of credit there. And then the fourth point to bear in mind is that there are still some folk around who he worked with when he was prime minister and there is, those personal links are, will, will be quite load-bearing and will, will help. And I think there's some, some broader, less specific things, and that is that he's a highly, whatever one thinks of, of the referendum and what followed, he's a highly capable politician. He's been prime minister. He's very fluent. He brings a bit of stardust and a bit of status, and that will attract a bit more attention and open some more doors than even a British Foreign Secretary might usually be able to do. So I guess 
some sort of structural barriers or kind of necessarily political barriers to, to total kind of change, but obviously some upsides for this government potentially in terms of prosecuting their foreign policy and kind of improving relations where, where they want to in Europe. Yeah. He's also, if I may, I mean, he's, everyone thinks he's a mainstream politician and in a lot of Europe that matters. So that'll be helpful. Yeah. He sort of brings, I like, I like the idea of stardust and a bit of both stardust and a bit of gravitas. It's quite unusual for politicians to be able to, to bring both. I wonder, does this help this government at all kind of substantially in terms of UK-US relations? Obviously, again, that's a dynamic that's going to be dominated by what happens in elections here and, and, and on the other side of the pond. But, but how, how would you think about that in terms of the time that we have left before potentially both elections? So he, uh, he's a very credible figure. He'll be taken seriously. He's already had his first conversation with the American Secretary of State, actually Blinken, as someone who you know, has held the highest office, political office in this country and who is uh, rated for his ability and, and grasp and grit. Those are all good things. He has some contacts with the Democrat Party. There are camps of the Democrats he, he knows from his time when Obama was president. That is advantageous. Somewhat conversely, because of course he's a liberal conservative, uh, he may find outreach into the modern Republican Party a bit harder. And one of the issues uh, Britain and every other capital world should be thinking about over the next year is the contingency of, of uh, Donald Trump's return as president. So that uh, will be a little harder for him than those uh, foreign sectors we have quite a few over the past few years uh, who are more associated with the right. But the, the main items of business in foreign policy with the US will be dealing with, with current crises. There'll be the implementation of the Atlantic Declaration, but there isn't going to be kind of new building. It's going to be how uh, in particular handle Ukraine, Russia's base of Ukraine, the Israel-Hamas war, and then, of course, there's the subject that America would like to be uppermost in its mind, which is its relationship with China and how America's allies can contribute to what America wants to achieve. So we're going to come to your point around current crises in a moment, because I think that's obviously really important and kind of makes his appointment that much more significant. But just briefly, Alex mentioned China earlier, and obviously China in UK politics is an area where domestic and foreign policy very much meets and there's been a kind of strong Sino-skeptic contingent in the Conservative Party, which has kind of thrown its weight around over recent years. How far can we expect Cameron's views on China to present a kind of material problem to this government? Is there Are there kind of obvious moments of tension that are on the horizon in terms of is China or Sino-Sinophile approach? I mean, I, I think some of it, I think frankly, a lot of it is kind of baked in now into kind of the current government's approach. The the broad consensus in the Conservative Party is sceptical now towards Chinese investment in aspects of critical national infrastructure, which was obviously part of what Cameron pushed as part of the golden era when he was kind of photographed with Xi Jinping and Sergio Aguero at Manchester City's training ground, which is probably kind of one of the defining images in my mind of, of that time. So that's the thing. I think what we will start to see on Cameron is that he will want to be a team player he appreciates just how annoying it is to be a prime minister whose cabinet doesn't sort of step up and step behind him. You can see that obviously on what he's doing on ETHR. He will obviously be, I think, sort of simpatico with Rishi Sunak around the need for, you know, the need for investment and commercial relationship with China 
when it comes to stuff that's not regard, not related to kind of national security or uh, critical national infrastructure. And we'll sort of try to kind of tread that fine line, um, particularly kind of on the sort of uh, de-risking rather than decoupling side of the debate. But arguably, that's where kind of the secular trend has gone in the West over the last couple of years anyway. And I don't think he's really going to kind of buck the trend on that. Clearly, it is going to cause, you know, sort of you had MPs talking about, well, I've been sanctioned by the Chinese state. And therefore, you know, I want to know just how, just how, what you're, what you have been doing with China or Chinese entities over the last sort of six, seven years. But I think that's kind of irritation rather than something fundamental. I think naturally, even though foreign secretaries have a very senior role, it is still somewhat more in the background. It's not on the day to day of domestic politics. And I think that's probably going to kind of act in favor of that being a, an issue that is possibly less present in people's minds than there might have been the case a few years ago when we first had the real kind of schisms and changing of policy in the UK towards China. So potentially quite a lot of noise and, and definitely like a parliamentary dynamic to watch, but not necessarily kind of fundamental change. Yes, yeah, which have shifted away from his, from where the policy was when he was prime minister anyhow. Yeah, exactly. So maybe now just to turn to kind of the key foreign policy issues that are very much in the news at the minute and kind of the two live con conflict, just, I guess, useful to understand from both of you how you think or whether you think David Cameron's appointment will radically um, alter the dynamic or kind of change the way that the UK prosecute foreign policy in relation maybe first to Ukraine? Well, I think the answer is probably not very much with either and particularly not with Ukraine. There'll be continuity in policy. David Cameron is, at some degree, a liberal internationalist in foreign policy. He has already visited President Zelensky today. He will be a staunch advocate of strong support for Ukraine. He uh, will uh, be very active in uh, building that support, maintaining that support with Britain's and Ukraine's liberal democratic allies. And talking to others as well. So I don't think there will be much change there. I expect he will be a public advocate of what we are, what this country is doing there uh, as well. On the on the second, on the Israel Hamas war, again, not massive change. Clearly, this is a war that is uh, developing, and political reactions developing. Countries' positions are evolving, and one can see that in language of American diplomacy as well as from EU institutions, European countries individually, as well as those across the world. I think where there might be a bit of a difference is that uh, David Cameron, as when he was prime minister, will perhaps be readier to speak out with criticism of, what the of how the Israeli government is, uh, is achieving uh, its goals while not deviating a moment from belief in its right to Israel's right to defend itself. And I, that that's possible shift in in the in the spectrum of what the British government is willing to to say. Uh, that might matter politically and that might matter a bit to the Labour Party as well. He is uh, he will he is more self-confident in handling Middle Eastern issues and more experienced in it than some of his predecessors. But Presumably on, on that, he will be sort of led um, to some extent by the US and what they do. I mean, it, the more they lean in that direction, that might sort of determine that's the more important trigger point to watch. Or, or uh, are you saying he would kind of potentially go further in terms of what he himself does? 
Well, Britain often doesn't vote identically to the US, the UN on this. So there, there is often a margin of difference. And I think that margin might be potentially wider, but looking at you know, what everything, everything the American government is briefing and what they are saying, in reality, I think there is very little difference uh, between American and British policy. And of course, what we must bear in mind most of all is that America is the decisive power here. Uh, uh, we are not, nor is any other European country. Yeah, absolutely. Guess one final question from me. Are there any other wider geopolitical challenges or even kind of domestic policy challenges where we should expect the new foreign secretary to play a kind of role that uh, outstrips maybe his position or, 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 or defies expectations? Are there other areas that we should be looking at and watching other than those that we've spoken about? Well, I think there are two or three things, but on one or two of them, I'll, I'll defer to Alex. I mean, the, the first is that David Cameron, as, our, as the prime minister does, has a very strong relationship um, with the Indian government. That relationship will have added resilience. That doesn't necessarily make the current negotiations on a free trade agreement any easier, but it will open up perhaps further possibilities for, for common, act, common project. And the, the other two, but I got a third one on this, is David Cameron has always been a passionate advocate of international development. Since uh, the merger of departments, uh, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, and I expect uh, he will fight fiercely for a strong development role. He and Andrew Mitchell, who's the is effectively now number two in the FCDO, are is they have a very strong relationship. They're old friends. Andrew Mitchell also believes very much in development, so there'll be a lot of that. And then uh, there's the question of what it means for what one might call green foreign policy, uh, which um, David Cameron. Was, was, a, was a priority for David Cameron as Prime Minister, but I'll defer on the domestic side of these issues to Alex. You would have thought that Cameron would lean more instinctively into kind of heavy engagement over issues like COP28 and, and that kind of wider agenda. That being said, I mean, obviously, there, there have been a series of machinery of government changes that are going to be uh, impacted on that. And clearly, a lot of foreign affairs is still conducted by the Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister is Rishi Sunak, not David Cameron. I think what is going to be really interesting is how Cameron uses his weight behind the scenes to get what he wants. I spoke earlier about how, as a former prime minister, he knows how annoying it is to be campaigned against in the media by his own cabinet ministers. I suspect he'll want to avoid doing that. But can you see him wanting to own the centre ground, for want of a better term, genuinely for want of a better term? Um, it's a shorthand centre ground that is kind of, well, we can have long debates about it, but uh, certainly in terms of his ideation of what his politics are, you know, will he want the government to be owning the centre ground when it comes to green policies, owning the centre ground when it comes to uh, advocating and arguing for the 0.7% GDP development spending target, which was a really important kind of point and part of his premiership. I would note that the, one of the people he was in Kiev with uh, was Baroness Sugg who actually resigned over Rishi Sunak's government dropping the 0.7% target in the first place. So you can see kind of where the pressure comes. What I find interesting is what happens when you get questions around defence spending. Should we end up with a, you know, him being part of an administration during a spending review? Equally, I think his voice on the matter of immigration is going to be quite interesting. Obviously, this is a Home Secretary responsibility. But if you're talking about returns agreements, if you're talking about safe countries, if you're talking about treaties, you are talking about foreign policy. 
Uh, Cameron was always credited with being uh, tougher on migration than anyone else in his government, apart from Theresa May, who was his Home Secretary throughout. I think that might sort of upset some people's perceptions of what he is willing to do over issues such as uh, Rwanda and the Supreme Court judgment that came out this week here in the UK. At the same time, he will not be keen to be seen to be a torching aspect of the European Convention on Human Rights, which uh, is obviously one of the key debates at the moment in the Conservative Party about its response to the issue of small boats and questions of asylum being claimed in the UK by people who come over on small boats. And I think that's going to be very interesting. I mean, Cameron basically always relied on a sort of a sense of team captain, play up, play the game ethos which was easy because he was the team captain. He was a team captain from 2005 to 2016. It's, uh, there are very few MPs in the House of Commons who were there from a pre-Cameron time in the Conservative benches. So seeing how he adapts to a role that he hasn't played for a very long time, remember this is only his second job in government, I think is going to be very, very interesting for observers of British politics. And some of that will be consequential on the policies that are going to impact businesses over the course of the next year. And actually, just to kind of reiterate Denzel's point, we do have an election most likely coming up in October. I don't think there's an assumption that Cameron wouldn't have come back if the UK general election was going to be in May. So he has a year to make a mark and uh, it will be interesting to see what he does with it. Obviously, he may well have more if he is return is so successful he ends up uh, helping the Conservatives gain a fifth general election victory. I was just, if I may, make one final point, just building on what Alex said, uh, and that is uh, that David Cameron is the politician to his finger. And I'd say that opinion isn't unanimous that that is true of the Prime Minister. And so it is quite likely that the Prime Minister will lean on David Lord Cameron's advice, and that will, on a broader variety of issues, and that will make him even more influential, the government's remaining term. Yeah, so so important to watch his tactics and advice as much as uh, his policy choices. But I think a few things kind of came out there in terms of foreign policy. Interesting to watch what happens with India, his perspectives around international development and green diplomacy. And then on the domestic side, interesting to see how it plays out in terms of immigration, particularly because some of that might defy expectations. And then, as Alex mentioned, also on defence spending, which no doubt, given the ongoing conflict that we've spoken about, will be a very salient issue, perhaps not until we kind of get into the spring fiscal event, but but clearly not going to go away. I think we will leave it there. But thank you, Alex and Denzel, very much for joining us for a fascinating discussion. This has been a very useful run through of what we can expect from David Cameron's appointment to Foreign Secretary. If your business is involved, impacted or engaged in any of the developments that we discussed today, please feel free to get in touch with us on www.global-council.com or reach out to Alex, Denzel or I. Our details are in the podcast notes.